Hey guys, welcome to episode 13 of the Judo Talk podcast. Judo Talk, Talk, 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 Judo Talk, Talk. Welcome guys, welcome to episode 13. Um Thanks for all the positive messages uh, for last week's episode. Um, I do really enjoy getting the messages from you guys, especially uh, there's quite a few people now reaching out from different countries. Please do. And I said it on the end of last podcast, you know, if you listen to these podcasts and you enjoy them, you know, please just share them, subscribe to whatever platform you listen to it on. Uh, If you could subscribe to the to the podcast you know give it five stars um it would be really appreciated if you don't like it then obviously don't put no stars you know don't stitch me up like that but yeah if you're enjoying the podcast uh, it would be really really great um if you yeah if you could just you know share it with somebody past the pod it would be uh it'd be really great um so episode 13 this one is actually a really good episode i think um it's slightly different uh, very heavily based on coaching but I think there's lots of things in there that are really interesting um, towards the end of the podcast there is some interference with the mic uh, from the guest um, it's not it's not terrible by any means but just to warn you and you know uh, at the end of the podcast obviously uh, I'll come back to you guys but yeah just I hope you enjoy this podcast I enjoyed it and I'll speak to you guys on the other side. Hey guys, welcome to this episode of Judo Talk. And today I've got a guest. Uh, today is Cal Jones. Hello, Cal. Hi. <laughs> now, <laughs> this is this is a new one for me. So normally, well, so far I've interviewed people I know. And Cal, you pretty much just sent me a cold email, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah, to do you chat with Darren and you were talking about skill acquisition and I'm a Skillac nerd, really. So I thought it'd be quite interesting to come on and introduce judo coaches to a thing called ecological dynamics, just a, a different way of coaching skill. Yeah, and it is a first for me. And this is like normally, because I know the person, I can sort of prep some ideas of where I want to go. But this is going to be one of the first interviews for me where I don't really know where it's going to go. And since having Darren on, uh, I was lucky Darren sent me some books and some literature which I've been sort of dipping in and out of but I'm not I'm not up to speed with all of the latest research on you know it, it's such a big field and so what I want to make sure is that I fully understand and hopefully if I can get my head around it everybody who's listening will get their head around it as well um, but let's start you are a judo player first aren't you you are you are a judo player yeah, yeah. Started when I was five. Been doing 27 years. Started coaching 15 years ago. Mm. Uh, just finished the masters, so did the BJ level five. Uh, what? And what was November? Something like. That. And what was your introduction to judo? Was it in Wales? Where you know? How did you get started in judo? Yeah, local club. My dad used to do judo when he was a younger man, uh, and I used to see my dad turn up to training and thought. He's chucking people on their heads. I quite fancy doing that. Uh, so I got Don't taken to... Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I got taken to a local club and was there for a couple of years. And then I moved to my dad's club. I think he didn't want me 
where he was because you know he was trying to train with his friends they didn't want his son flying around but eventually relented and let me come down uh yes yeah, so then i trained for well decades mm. <laughs> plenty of judo uh- and how was it when you, you know, when you look back at your, your start of judo, if you know everything that you know now, uh, was it a good start in setting you on your path or what do you think? Yeah, so I actually started in a different club to where I've made my most of my judo career. I started in a place called Abigelli, uh, with a club that was much more regimented, who were quite fixed. We used to get a sheet of techniques that we were given We'd do the technique on the sheet we'd take it home and stick it in a folder and and uh yeah that that doesn't sit right with me that's not really how you learn sport uh but then when i moved clubs when i was i don't know maybe eight i went to colwyn bay uh my coach there is a bit of a mad genius really he uh, has a a really ecological approach to coaching i don't think that it's grounded in any research or literature he's just cool he lets you so- play and figure stuff out before we go any further, can we just make sure that I understand what ecological means? Like, can you, yeah, of course. Break, can you really break it down? So I, I want to make sure that anybody's listening to this because sometimes I know when I know I can get really geeky on things and start talking about it, but I just want to make sure everybody comes along with us on this. Yeah, of course. No, it can be fairly dry if I just throw terms around that don't mean anything. Uh, yeah. So essentially there's two main theories on how we, coordinate movements. One of them is what's called an information processing approach, which is where your brain is like a computer. So all of our senses, we see things, hear things, feel things, and our brain picks up that information. It does some wizardy maths and it selects a program and we use that program. Uh, The other version is an ecological approach, essentially. So there we have a thing called specifying information. So my brain isn't working stuff out. It's not doing maths to figure things out. I move myself in relation to what I'm feeling. So swimming makes is a, a quite a useful example of it. You know, if I lie on the side of a swimming pool on the ground and have somebody explain the technique of swimming. So I'm gonna put my right hand forward and pull back where the water would be. I'm gonna kick my legs and that'll propel me forwards. I could do that for 10 years. And the second I get in a swimming pool, I've got no idea how to balance, how to propel myself, how to do any of it. I've got knowledge about how to swim, but I don't actually know how to swim, if you see what I mean. Mm. So the ecological approach says that we can't take a technique outside of the environment that it exists in. So learning to ride a bike on stabilizers, that's another good one. You see all these, uh, what do they call them, balance bikes now that kids have. They don't have stabilizers on a pedal bike. They just have a bike without pedals and they balance on it because you've got the specified information there is you're having to actually move yourself forward and learn how to balance on a bike. It's not a technique. There's no, this is how I pedal. You put your right foot forward and your left foot forward. It's so with all... that, I um. I have personal experience with that because I thought that was a gimmick until I've got two boys. So I've got uh, <laughs> one's four, one's five. And they both learn how to, they learn on a balance bike. And by the age yeah, of sure. three, they had the skills to balance and ride a bike. And it blew my mind. That for me actually <laughs> blew my mind. I've already converted. You're an eco, <laughs> you're an eco. Well, no, yeah, I, know well I guess not. You <laughs> we'll have to do yeah. a bit more work. <laughs> Yeah, so essentially that that you've you've hit the nail on the head already there. You've 
you've not put a crutch on something and you're learning a technique. You know, if I started riding a bike on a bike with stabilizers at three. Or a spin bike, I guess. Yeah, or a spin bike. Yeah, for sure. The, the technique that's there is moving your legs. I'm moving my feet, pedaling a bike, but I've not actually got any of the skill. The skill of riding a bike isn't knowing the technique of pedaling. It's being able to keep your balance as you turn a corner. It's being able to move forward without falling off. It's exactly the same in judo. You know, I might know how to do a nakuriyashi burai, but if I'm not able to pick up on when my partner's center of mass has come down and it's coming up and they're light on their feet and I can time that through, knowing what a move is from a little picture book is useless. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a disembodied technique. And we tend to do an awful lot of this in judo in general. We'll learn a throw. We'll do some uchikomi of it. You'll do your 10 reps and you'll throw on the last one. And you do that for 10 years and people get better. But my contention, and I think to be fair, most of the literature supports it, is they're getting better because after they've done that, they go and do some randori. It's not that they're doing these drills that helps them actually embed the skill it's after they've done that the the warm-up essentially they then go and do some randori stuff mm. yeah. so I, th- I i can already hear in my head this is gonna ruffle a lot of feathers in the <laughs> world like i've had lots of conversations with coaches and i know there's going to be so many of them are like well that's you know you've got to do this this is what we've done this is what we've done for years and stuff but on the flip side i do think there's also going to be a lot of judo coaches that have most probably thought about this but not necessarily had a name for it or Mm -hmm. you know they've just done games or they've just you know uh they've led a restraint approach you know they put some some rules in place of what they're going to do but not really knowing what it is and i think I, this is going to be a really interesting podcast because I usually get quite a few messages afterwards when a podcast <laughs> comes out. So I'm actually really looking forward to this one coming back where people sort of come, you know, and I'm hoping that if they were <laughs> so far one way, they might, you know, it might be the thing that brings them over. But um, so if we think about Uchikomi, Nagkomi and stuff, let's start from the beginning. What are you, what are you saying? What's your statement? And then let's work our way from there. Excuse me. Uh, essentially, that all the time that we're spending doing Uchikomi and Nagakomi, we could be spending that time doing something that's more effective at actually developing skill. Um, and I, I suppose knowing that there probably might be some blowback, I, I would like to say I'm not criticizing coaches that use these methods. You know, I've criticized them before and had people get quite defensive. And it took me a fair bit of time to realize that I'm not criticizing an abstract thing here this is something that somebody spent 30 years of their career doing helping people get better and they see them get better and some nobody from nowhere in wales comes along and says actually that's not how you do it i could see how that could could you know really offend people so i'm, I'm definitely not trying to besmirch anybody's coaching abilities or their passion or dedication for judo i just think that the the way the literature has developed over the last 20, 30 years, we now know more than we did in 1880. Uh, and I think that we might be best off embracing what the sports science literature has shown to us and moving forward with it. Um, and I appreciate it might not be for everybody, but I can 
well, I, I know I have them reaching out. I know there are coaches out there that are desperate to try other things, things that aren't quite as regimented and as formal and linear as, mm. right, in you come, we're going to do Uchikomi, static, we're going to do Uchikomi upper room, then we're going to do some Nagakomi, we'll do some transitions into a Nawaza technique, and then we'll finish off with 50 minutes of Randori. Mm. And that's an awful lot of clubs up and down the country is that. Um, yeah, so I suppose let's, what is the solution then? Because obviously, yeah. I, as I said, I've read a, a little bit about it. I've not read that much, but I always found when I was reading the literature around the science, the biggest, well, the hardest thing was always relating it to judo because there's always a get out in judo. Uh, judo's just different because it's aerobic <laughs> and an anaerobic sport. It, you need to be strong, but you need to be flexible. So there's always, no, this is how I do it. The, you know, this is my style. This is, so let's, let's say if we weren't to do the Uchikami and the Nagakoi, what is, what's the other option? Yeah, uh, just that's every sport, by the way. That mm. oh, it wouldn't work in my sport. Yeah. I've seen it with hurling recently. There's a gentleman that said that hurling a ball against the wall doesn't make people better at hurling, and he had a right pile on on Twitter. So, so please don't do that to me, anybody listening. Be nice. I'm, I'm nice in real life. Um, yeah. So the solution essentially is to have constraints, so little rules that we put on games that give us something called specifying information. So something that happens that we learn how to pick up, how to read, essentially, and take advantage of it. So using something like uh, foot sweeps as an example. So one of the ways you could learn foot sweeps is you could have somebody stood. Uki puts their foot forward. Tori just practices the technique. They do a little foot pattern, put the bottom of their sole on Uki's foot and push it. And they do that. 10 times and they start learning what the technique looks like. And then they move on to that and they start doing it doing some uh, nagakomi uki's helping them the whole time he's taking these steps but at that point tori hasn't actually learned how to feel somebody's weight shifting he hasn't learned when you'd apply the skill he hasn't learned how you would change it if somebody's resisting so all the stuff that embeds the skill isn't present you know so if you look at me and neil adams doing foot sweeps i've got technique I've, you know, I've done 27 years of judo i know what an, an ashiwaza looks like i can i can do it and he does the same technique but when he's in randori he's got masses of ability he's able to feel in the tips of his fingers when somebody's weight has shifted a little bit when somebody tries to resist he's able to attune to that he can feel what they're doing and through masses of repetitions masses of variable practice he's learned when somebody shifts their body like this to try and stay up i do this i change how i'm doing the technique and i take advantage of that information that i'm picking up on when we practice a technique on its own all of that information that we need to learn how to use it's just not there you're trying to learn to ride a bike with stabilizers on it's just it doesn't work nobody learns to ride a bike on stabilizers you start learning as soon as you take your stabilizers off it might make you feel comfortable but it doesn't help you learn so just before we go any further i'm sure there would be people listening that know neil and what if they were to turn around and what if Neil was listening? He said, well, actually what I'd done was a load of Uchikomi, a load of Nagakomi, and that's why I'm so good. Like where, how did he get to that point then? Yeah, for sure. So this is one of the, the big problems we have in the, in research in general is people's 
uh, understanding of what made them good can be quite detached from what actually made them good. You know, there's a guy by me who had a pear tree in his garden and used to go out and do chicomies on his pear tree as a kid. And he became a Masters World Champion, you know, very, very good judo player. But I don't think it was him in the garden pulling on a rubber band that made him very good at judo. It was the fact that he did judo for like 40 years and went into the Masters and was very good at judo. The fact that, so have you heard of B.F. Skinner? So he's the guy, so he's a psychologist who did a study where he had pigeons in a cage and they released food at random. But these pigeons started developing these little superstitions, these little routines where they'd do a little dance or they'd peck at a certain corner because as the food's released, they think that they've got agency. They think as they've done that little spin, it's made the food fall. And people are just like that. You know, you, I could end up thinking that it was me rubbing red wine on the bottom of my feet that made me a champion sprinter. I did that every morning and I, I won the world championships. So you can't tell me that red wine in the feet didn't work, but that's not what made me a champion sprinter. What made me a champion sprint was all the other stuff I did. You know, it's how we know something like prayer. You know, I don't mean to offend any religious people. Crikey, I'm already getting the judo community. Yeah, let's <laughs> uh, not make this. Uh... <laughs> no, no, let, let's say homeopathy then. So there are people out there that have had cancers go into remission and they will swear blind to you that it was some faith healer that came over and shook the hands over them or it was the Reiki specialist doing something. But it's not. It's the fact that they've also had chemotherapy. It's just very difficult for people to make those connections in their head. I mean, Neil Adams was a phenomenally gifted judo player who trained with phenomenally gifted judo players in a phenomenally talent-rich environment. So all of the masses of Randori he's doing against incredibly talented players will make him really, 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 really good at judo. Mm. It might... Yeah. So let's just... I know this isn't what you are saying, but it might come across at the moment that you're just saying, right, let's open the doors, we'll get all the five-year-olds, and we just say, right, fight, and let's see who comes out better. But, <laughs> you know, I, I know that's not what you're saying, but I, I want you just to go into a bit more, like, what is it? What are we, what are we going to do that's different, that's going to make... Yeah. Because I want there to be... I want by the end of this, like, for people to really think, well... I could try that. I could do this, you know, and actually try it out themselves. It might be that they try it and they think it's a load of rubbish, you know, <laughs> but let's, let's actually give them something to think about. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's a, it's a really good point. There's a, an adage that's mis, misattributed to the constraints that approach that is let the game teach itself, which just, mm-hmm. it's just not true. That's not, that's not what we're saying at all. So let's use um, foot sweeps as an, as an example. So one approach, the sort of traditional approach, would be Uchikomi, Nagakomi. We look at the technique. Coach shows it on his uki. Everybody looks at it. They show it from a couple of angles. They do whole part, whole. Everybody goes. They practice it for a bit. And then later on, they'll do some randori where they might have a chance at doing that. Instead of doing that, the contentional, what I think the literature suggests is we should play a bunch of little games that get us to, it's called a tuning to information. So I need to get a game where the person that's doing judo learns how to feel what it feels like when somebody puts themselves in a good position to catch them with a foot sweep. So a, a simple progression could be something like uh, we're going to play tug of war. 
So I put a line of belts through the middle of the mat, half the classes on one side, half the classes on the other, you grip up with a partner and you need to pull them to your side of the mat. So if I pull my partner to my side of the mat, I get a point, yeah? After you've done a couple of rounds of that, you start getting these really exaggerated defensive positions. So if I'm trying to pull you to my side of the mat, what position do you end up in? You're essentially gonna have your weight on your heels pulling me backwards, aren't you? So you're putting in yourself in a position that I would be trying to apply an Ashiwaza. I wouldn't try an Ashiwaza if you were upright, if you're nice and tall or your balance wasn't broken at all. But through this game, you're actually creating positions where people are learning how to figure out or how to feel what it feels like when somebody has their balance in those compromised positions. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I've got this. Yeah. Yeah. So after. <laughs> Did I look really so... vacant then? No, no. <laughs> I just, I, I, I can get a bit wordy at times. Uh, yeah, so that's a, a good starting position. And then one of the progressions I put in, I call it landmines because I'm a bit sadistic. You put a bunch of um, rubber spots on the floor and you make a little rule that if you can make your opponent stand on a spot, you get a point. So as you're moving people around, trying to push and pull them so that they step on a spot on the floor, they're constantly putting evasive footwork patterns in. They're moving and their balance is being offset. It's being broken as we're moving about the mat. And I'm actually learning to pick up on it. They call it haptic feedback. I'm learning what it feels like when my partner's weight shifts onto their heels or what it feels like when they're pushing me and their weight comes too much into me. So I could apply a physical room or something. So as we start playing these little games, you're getting the information that we need to actually become more skillful. Does that make sense? So rather than drilling it without any context, we make sure that the context is there as we practice. So... It might be the case that uh, a five-year-old kid has no clue how to do any form of foot sweep. So you can build that skill set into them. You can say, we want you to just move his foot. You can add bits to the technical element, or let's not say technical, into the, the kinematic solution, how they move their body to do the thing. But the most important bit is that we have that specifying information. They have something there that actually happens in a judo fight. What doesn't happen in a judo fight is I come up and grip you and you put your hands out like a zombie and stand still as I turn in for throws. I'm learning to become incredibly good at throwing people that just stand there, but I don't know how I adjust my body when my partner pushes the hips forwards. I don't know what I do if they try and step to the side because I've ne- I never pick up on that. The only time I get that information is for the 15 minutes at the end when it's randori, where everyone doesn't want to lose because they want to go home with a big smile, not having just been chucked everywhere by old green belt Barry, who's really good. So what would you say? Because I do think judo is a difficult... You're, try, you're trying to throw an object that doesn't want to be thrown, so that's quite difficult. Yeah. And one of So one of the things that... I don't like necessarily about randori is people very rarely practice what they want to practice. Okay. So what I mean by that is say, for example, they want to do a full depth Sianagi. So they want to squat right down and mm-hmm. come up. It's a similar movement to like a clean and jerk. All right. A really complex movement. Uh, it takes a lot of coordination, a lot of power, a lot of stability. And the chance of anybody doing that in a randori is slim to none. You know, mm-hmm. until you get to the the elite level, yeah, and, great Randall. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing; it, it's going to take a lot. But at some point, they need to experience that full range of movement. Okay, mm-hmm. so 
I would then say, well, unless they do the Nagakomi in that scenario, how are the how are they going to activate the muscles, develop the balance and stuff? Unless they're doing it with a cooperative partner, that's going to allow them uh, to go through the full range. You know, finish the technique, develop the control, develop that. If it's always against somebody who's trying to stop them or do something yeah. else. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so it doesn't necessarily have to be that they're trying their level best to stop them, for starters. So one of the things that I like to do is a, a sort of freeze frame version of a randoi. So I'm trying to throw you. Your My only goal is to throw you with my first attack. I'm trying to catch you with my primary throw. If I throw you with my primary throw, I've won. It's game over. I've, I've won, you lose. You can avoid my first throw, but you have to freeze the moment you touch the floor. So as soon as you've avoided my attack, you need to hold yourself in position, okay? So that's really useful for giving people the specified information they need. They get to feel what it feels like when somebody has stepped off their attack and it's been unsuccessful, and they get to read where their opponent has landed. So after, let's say, I've tried to do a... Uh, I've done a coochie, you've stepped off, and you've landed with your feet back, your head forward, and you're in a sort of hunched over jigger position. So that position, then you stay there and I have all the time in the world to practice my next attack. So it might be that I'd practice my squat, deep squat, at that point, uh, that would be how I'd do it. Or you can do it by building that technique up or that skill up in small chunks. So you do it, our first little con condition is all you need to do is turn your back on your partner and get their chest to touch your back. So if I can get your chest to touch my back, I get a point. Yeah. So we're essentially practicing turning in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And from there, you change the rule set. So I need to get your belt to touch my back. So I'm getting even lower. I'm turning and I have to get that depth. And all I'm looking to do is get connection with my back and your belt. So I'm having the, the constraints of the game are forcing me to get into a deep squat position. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I don't know if yeah, yeah. So after we've done that, then I can put in a rule that I need to pick you up. So I need your belt to touch my back and I need to lift you off the floor. I don't need to finish my throw yet. I just have to pick you up. I don't care how we're connected. I could be holding two sleeves. I could be doing this. Well, no, they can't see this, can they? I yeah, could be holding this. definitely can't see that on a <laughs> no, podcast. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's how it works. Uh, yeah, so I'm attaching them to me any, any way I can. And then eventually you build it in so that we're working off a Sinagi grip and you're playing the same rule set. So I'm, I only score a point if your belt touches my back and I lift you off the floor. And from there, you know, it's, it's idiot proof to finish a technique. The khaki part of throws is usually the easiest to build in when you're building it. It's one of the hardest to do effectively, I think, landing people flat on their back consistently, but it's the easier part to, to coach, I think, I hope. <laughs> And would you, so are you saying from the age, the age of five or when they start or whatever age, at no point you, you're not worried about teaching actually any judo techniques. You're just worried about, do they understand the game that we're playing? Do they understand the rules of engagement? Yeah, so I do. Uh, so essentially there's a real world 
things that mean that you, you sometimes compromise your ideals. So sometimes I'll teach a throne if I don't think that the people can land safely from it. You know, at the end of the day, we are in a full contact grappling sport where you're throwing your partner to the floor with force. So I want to mitigate the risk of people getting clobbered as much as possible uh, without making it pointless. So sometimes I'll give just direct instruction. This is the move. This is what it looks like. Go and practice a bit. And then I abandon that and we play these constraint games so that they learn how to actually apply the skill. So sometimes the safety concerns overtake the skill acquisition concerns. Uh, but for something like, let's say, uh, an Ogoshi, the skill in Ogoshi isn't, it's not a technical one. It's not having my feet in front of my partner's feet, bending my knees, keeping my back upright, having good contact in the connection. Those things are back-ended, not front-ended. They come because of all the other stuff. It's not that they lead to the other stuff. The whole point of an Ogoshi is that I get my partner's chest on my back and I bend my knees and pick them up, right? So in fact, for most Koshiwase, I'm trying to just get contact with my partner's chest and my back, and I pick them up. How I throw them to the floor changes the name of the throw in judo, but the kinematic structure of it, contact, connection, lift, splat, is the same for an awful lot of throws. So for an Ogoshi, you could play one of the games I play, and it's it's not not novel to me, it's done all over the place is you put little tags in the back of people's belts and to score a point you need to reach underneath the arm and remove the tag do you know the game yeah so actually um so this will offend a lot of people in my time no no what i'm gonna say is gonna offend a lot of people (laughs) Uh, so in uh, when i'm teaching uh no one's allowed to do ogoshi Okay, mm-hmm. and so Ogoshi is a technique that we don't practice, but we do play that game for the other reason. And the reason why I don't like Ogoshi is because I feel like to be able to do it, and I'm talking about like kids starting off and developing through, is you have to break your structure to, to close that distance, go in. And generally when people start judo, the biggest person wins that exchange. So the bigger person will either Tanya Toshi and them back, like take them back or yeah, the bigger yeah. person will get Ogoshi to work. And obviously I want the kids to have success. So we use that game, but the focus is that only one person has the tag and they have to defend it. So they have to stay in their Sugiyashi stance. They have to move. They have to learn how to control the space, the distance mm-hmm. between them and their partner. So yeah. we don't do it as a practice for Ogoshi. We do it as a practice of controlling distance. Yeah, I think I think you might enjoy giving this a try. Try it if you think it's rubbish, then never go back to it. But if you get both of them to put a tag in their back and start with you're just trying to remove your opponents, so then they've actually got to have consideration of defending a grip whilst they're trying to take a grip, which is mm. a useful skill in and of itself. But then you can build it up. So I normally then go for a Koshiguruma grip, so you're going over the shoulder to remove it so that you've got, you know, if you're seven foot tall and you're fighting somebody four foot and one of you's got an advantage for the round the back and one of you's got an advantage for the over the top so Mm. i quite like that but then to finish it just say once you've got the tag or once you're in position to get the grip to score you just have to lift your partner off their feet that's it Mm. you're not finishing the throw yet you're just lifting them because if you get a bunch of kids that can get in get the grip and lift their partner off the feet then they're not breaking their structure they're in a strong position because they wouldn't be able to lift if they'd had their structure compromised you see what I mean? So you've got this, the 
the outcome itself is determined by the game. If I can get myself into position to lift you, I must have been in a good, strong structural position. If mm. I can't lift you, then I'm entering really poorly. It's one of the useful things of having a skill taught embedded in the action that actually happens. Because I could practice an Ogoshi against a static Uchi that's just standing like a zombie a million times and not understand that I'm turning my back into a letter S and I'm in this horrible postural position. But if I try and do that while I'm trying to lift somebody up, they just go, no, and put some weight on me and stop me from entering to pick them up. So the fact they have success means it has to work, you know. So from, from this conversation, for me, like the benefit of this, and there's lots of things that you said that I definitely do in my coaching. But this is for me, I think I'm just trying to find the best way to put it. Basically, you're teaching Uki. Because I think when when basically people teach judo, they teach about Tori does the turn, Tori does this. And people forget that actually the most important part is what Uki does. You know, <laughs> what Uki does is make or break for that technique. So say, for example, if I want to demonstrate something, I'm always going to pick the best judo player on the mat to make my technique look better because I know how integral <laughs> that role is. For sure, but that's yeah. the thing, you know, you need to get that buy-in. So the for me, the biggest thing with these games, these parameters, is actually the, the person doing judo or both people that are doing judo very quickly learn that it's a two person thing. It's not one person practices whilst the other person stands there. Yeah, that's, that's almost exactly, uh, exactly it. But it's not just that it's Uki that's learning. It's that Tori learns off Uki. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Tori. Yeah. Tori doesn't learn these list of throws in isolation or skill isn't developed by learning a list of throws in isolation. You know, I I could learn a bunch of, I was trying to coach rugby today. I can learn a list of set plays that happen in rugby. So I receive the ball, I'm looking for you know, some guy to catch it on the inside. And I've got another option on the outside of me and I have to pass to one of these people. If I can't read what the defense is doing, I can't make a decision. I'm literally just doing a skill, a technique. I'm just, I can throw the ball, but it's not embedded, embedded. It's not an embodied thing. I'm just performing a skill. So what we tend to do in judo is we learn a bunch of techniques, but we don't have very much, we don't learn skill very efficiently. We, the argument that is put forward quite a lot is that we learn the techniques so that we can then transfer them and make them become skilled. But the problem there is we, there's a, two principles one's called functionality and the other's action fidelity so when we're practicing if my partner just stands there like a lemon that's not representative of what happens in a contest environment so how i perform my skill will be very 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 different against the person that does this and against the person that tries to stop me so think of it like um, basketball if i've if i'm learning basketball and i learn and a little shotty thing. I will the just say do Cal's that. doing some really good demonstrations <laughs> here as well. So you guys aren't really getting the benefit of this, but there's some really good demonstrations going on. I'm glad you like them. <laughs> yeah. Go on, sorry. So, so my, my solution for putting a shot in in basketball, I might get 100 out of 100 
throwing the ball in unopposed. But the second there's a six foot six man standing with his hand above me, all that practice I've done learning how to throw a ball into a net is just gone. It's out of the window. I'm at square one again because I've not figured out how to actually throw a ball into a net when there's other people around. We're in a sport that has two people. Me learning what to do when I've got this person doing nothing, it's just, it's redundant. It's without wanting to be offensive it's in my opinion it's a little bit dated i mean the concepts the concepts are there in judo anyway i think the term they use is dabane when you recognize the opportunity to throw so when we're in a randori situation me knowing when i can break your balance is a skill that is developed and it is only really done in judo in randori i mean there are there are sort of constraint-based stuff you know you've got what is it kakari geiko you've got yakasuki geiko uh boo boo geiko i think it's one of them when you do so you're saying a load of words that yeah, i have yeah. no Sorry, idea what you're talking about i am traditional words. <laughs> not the judo ones no. <laughs> yeah so there's there's like little um attacker defender so that's a classic I'm going to attack, you're going to defend. That's a constraint. You know, that's looking at constraining. Um, having, I'm going to attack uh, with these set prescribed moves is putting constraints on practice. You're not just doing uchikomi and nagakomi. You're actually starting to build in rule sets to your randori that helps you develop and learn specific skills. I just think that they don't go far enough. I don't think that what they knew in 1880 is the same as what we know now in terms of how people actually develop. Uh, yeah, but this, the concept of the banner is really important. Knowing when I can break my partner's balance and actually apply a technique. You know, I bet if you, if we lined up a hundred Dan grades that are all fairly competent and got them to show five throws each, you wouldn't be able to tell me who the best judo player there is just from their technique. You just, it would be so difficult to do. I mean, there's some wonderful uh, aesthetic kata players that their technique just looks stunning, but it doesn't happen like that in Randori. But if we had those same hundred players and you watch them play a game of, can you get your back to touch your partner's chest? You would be able to tell me within the first 30 seconds who the best judo player on that mat is. If I can get myself into the position that your chest is touching my back, I'm going to be a better judo player than you. I suppose, though, we have to get to a point where, you know, what is... Because there's going to be loads of people that listen to this and say, well, what you're... Heretic, burn him. (laughs) (laughs) No, so I think there's going to be people that listen to this and say, well, it's no longer judo. Like, you can't... You cannot completely remove what judo is, and that is... Um, a group of techniques developed from a self-defense point of view that was then turned into a sport and there there will be people who turn around and say well you know why do you need all of that for kata you know maybe they want to be a kata expert yeah yeah yeah. Uh, Yeah. and anybody who's listening to these podcasts knows that's not me but (laughs) you know there, there will be people that say well you know i'm not too worried about that because we're practicing it for for that side of it so we you know you've i think you've still got respect why people do the sport or or do judo you know you can't completely uh remove it It, because you they would i guess they would almost say you're taking the soul out of this out of it yeah no i think that's a, a really valid uh really valid point 
but it's um i suppose the the contention is there's two sides to the coin isn't there you've got mm. we came from a martial art there's some sort of martial element to judo uh it's developed so that it has a sport inside but there is still sort of the remnants of some cultural japanese vestiges that really and that sounds like i'm denigrating it but i i do genuinely appreciate that's massively important to some people um and for those people then it's you know it's that's fine i assume that skill development isn't top of their list when it comes to judo at that point you know they're more interested in the more pedagogic developing character and all the other stuff that that makes it appeal to them and that's that's perfectly fine if i criticize something like kata or nagakomi or uchikomi as a method of developing skill i'm speaking about you and i are both going to compete against each other to see who can throw the other person on their back mm. hold the other person down or make the other person submit that's what i'm talking about that skill if we're talking about being able to perform a set routine you know there's uh, forms for kata then it's probably not going to be anywhere near as beneficial to be able to uh, attuned to what your opponent's doing because you know what they're going to do they're telling you they've told you for the last hundred years that they're going to do this little walk forward you turn when they do this bit so you're not actually having to learn to become skillful and dynamic and react to what your opponent's doing and how to modify a technique so that it actually works you're doing the other side of it and you know that's horses for courses i'm i'm in no way going to suggest that there's no value in that if that gives people meaning and joy then go whole hog same as walking football you know there are people that like playing walking football uh i'm not going to say that the people that are doing walking football should be doing constraint based learning where they've got an opponent that's showing them what actually happens rather than dribbling around a cone you know dribbling around a cone isn't going to help me develop my skill whereas having defenders they actually have to learn how to beat a defender would but you know they're they're 60 70 year old people that are in it because they love the sport they don't need me coming along and saying oh actually you're you could be doing that better you know if they they enjoy it crack on so we've um so when i when i'm coaching i like i talk to the people that i work with and i say the throw should be the easiest part of judo okay so the actual the throwing part is not the difficult part of judo because that should be it's getting to the point of throwing that's the the real hard bit and i, I think that's what we're talking about when it comes to skill um but the reason why i like them to practice nagakomi and i like them to do moving nagakomi and stuff like that is because what i want them to feel is what it feels like of a perfect throw and yeah. the way i the way i relate this is like a golf shot because i'm useless at golf but <laughs> i don't remember what it was like to start judo and not to be able to do throws i don't remember at that point so i i I learn golf because it gives me that empathy within my coaching of knowing what it's like to be bad. Like, and I'm not, yeah, I feel that, but, <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, so for me, when I hit a perfect golf shot, when I swing through and it just feels that is the closest thing I can say to somebody, that's what a judo throw should be. And mm -hmm. the nagakomi and the, and the throwing in that is because I want them to have a, a recognition of what, it feels like what they're aiming for so yeah. when we do all the skill stuff in their head they have a feeling of what they're aiming for because they can't see it they there's no way they can see it and if they tried to see it, it'd be too slow so where where, where would you stand on, on that 
yeah, so that's um, that's quite a common uh, thing that people bring up as a contention. So hopefully I've got an answer that's okay for you. Um, so. Yeah, me too. Mm. Essentially, uh, there's no such thing as a perfect throw. So the way that you would perform a technique will change within itself. So each of your repetitions of it will be completely different. So when you're talking about how it feels to do a perfect Tayatoshi, you mean how it feels to do a perfect Tayatoshi against an opponent that stood statically with their arms out, allowing you to do it, right? Um, so no. So what I'm talking about is when it's that feeling of them flying through the air where you yeah. know where they break the balance that and it's i'm not worried about where they throw it because at elite level judo there is no perfect because the elite level players make adjustments all the time so they might put yeah, they exactly might right. realize they put their body in a, a a position that i would never teach but they know then they have to be quicker or they have to rotate more so they're adjusting and that's their right as an elite level player but if you've got a, a 50 year old man who's had joint problems and stuff, what I want to make sure is biomechanically that he's able to perform something where he's not going to get injured, but he can start when I, when he watches an elite person do judo, then he's not going to be able to do how they do judo, but he can remember the feeling. He, he can understand the feeling. And when you then talk to them and you relate about principles and ideas, you're going, you remember that feeling of this and that, you know, yeah. and I know they're not going to be injured. It is another no, reason, no, no, you for know. sure. Yeah. And no, as I said, there's, um, there are considerations to be made to maximize people's uh, chances of not getting clobbered. I, I appreciate that. You know, I'd, I'd happily concede an awful lot of ground on what's more beneficial skill act wise to stop somebody from getting hurt. So if you're doing it because they've got some, you know, they've just had their spine fused and they can't move fully, then fine. You know, you limit it, you restrict as much as possible for them to be safe. But in terms of to feel what a good one feels like, there's a, there's a really famous problem in motor learning called the degrees of freedom problem which essentially means the amount of ways I can move all the segments of my body is almost infinite. There's, you literally never repeat a technique twice. There are, I'm, I'm going to try and not get overly technical now because there's long words I'll try and avoid. So there are things called invariants. So there are bits that are unique within throws. So if I was going to pick up a, a heavy book from the floor, I'd have to bend my knees I'd have to reach down with my arm and I'd have to pick it up. Every single person that picks something up from the floor needs to bend so they can get close to it, grab, and then straighten. That's, that's an invariant aspect to it. But we could all do it kinematically completely differently to each other. And none of those solutions are ideal. There's none that is better than the others if they work, if it actually has a successful mm. ending. So, and I, I was very much guilty of this. I did... Um, kinematic breakdowns i had a super slow motion camera and recorded uh, me and a few other decent decent ish judo players doing judo throws and then a bunch of rugby players doing them and i did breakdowns of where all the inefficiencies were so i could show what the invariants were uh because i'm sad um say that sounds like a right hoot. <laughs> yeah i know i know um i don't have much of a life um but the the solution itself is never the same 
there, there is an argument to do something like that from uh, what's called the IP perspective, from an information processing perspective. So if we don't think of ourselves as picking up on information directly, if we think that our brain's like a computer and we just see things, hear things, feel things, and our brain does some maths and works out what we need to do, then having a program, they call it a, a general motor program, having a picture of what a perfect one looks like in your head means that you can go to that bank, bring it out and play it. So I know that for my Taitoshi, I want my weight evenly distributed. I want my toes to be white. I want weight further forward. I need all the kinematic elements that you would want when you're coaching. If I know that's what it should be in my head, then there is an argument that I can go retrieve that, bring it in and apply it in situation. Uh, I don't agree with it. I think it's it's a bit nonsensical. Uh, but there, uh, to be fair, there are people out there that do think that. Um, so the only contention is, I have... Would, would this be in yeah, line sorry. with uh, the 10,000 hour rule? You know, Ericsson, I know... Um, is it Matthew Said uh, has done a load of, he's done a few books about, you know, there's been, yeah, yeah, yeah. this is what you're talking about, isn't it? I just want to make it so there, there might be people that have done, might have read those books, you know, because they are mm-hmm. quite popular. So I yeah, just want to make right. what you're talking about relatable and something. Yeah. So I'll, as an example, uh, having that perfect picture of what a good one looks like in your head that you can recall, modify and deploy I don't think that happens. There are people out there that do think that happens. But if we're in a randori position and you make an error and you're trying to do a Taitoshi and it goes wrong, it's not that you don't know the technique. It's that you can't, we call it parameterize. You can't adapt that picture in your head to make it fit the situation you're in. And the key to the sort of the cure for that isn't to do more repetitions of the technique. It's to try and put yourself in situations where you learn how to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned bounce, Matthew Said one. Yeah. I think in that he has a, an example of a table tennis player. So they had this uh, battery of tests and the guy who has the best reactions in the British squad at the time, table tennis wise, did a reaction time test and he scored the worst of anybody. Mm-hmm. And everyone was blown away by it. They thought, you know, must, the test must be broken. He's amazing. But it turns out that in, when he was in school, he didn't go to a fancy school and the room they had a table tennis table in was tiny. So he had to stand next to the table tennis table. He was really close to it. So his capacity to read the flight of a ball, to be able to coordinate himself, to tune to that information and clack the ball back was really, really, really specific. It wasn't that he had an amazing technique. It was that he was so situated within that that moment that he could apply his movement solutions based on what he was seeing coming at him. Mm. I think that that's, that's what we should probably be doing more of if we want skill to develop it's not doing repetitions of what we think a perfect technique looks like it's doing repetitions of trying to fit the techniques in in situations that we actually come across you know yeah. if i know what a tayatoshi looks like but i'm not getting tayatoshi when i'm doing my randoris it's not that i can't do the technique you know if you call me out and say oh you're not getting your tayatoshi what's wrong show me a tayatoshi and i do a perfect tayatoshi there's no point getting, well, we're going to do some Uchikomis. Let's practice. Well, what's the point in that? I know the move. I know what the technique is. I just can't do it when that guy's trying to stop me. So it's not practice the move. It's practice trying to get that guy. Yeah. 
And the skill as coaches, this is where the, the good news is, if you've done judo an awful and massive amount of time, your knowledge in how to get those constraints in should be ridiculously high. I mean, if I put, I won't put you on the spot in case you can't think of one, that'd be really awkward. But if you wanted to think of a game where you could put some rules in to get somebody into a position that you could practice your Tayatoshi on, I want, by the end of this, our players should be able to pick up when is a good opportunity to do Taitoshi and when is a bad time to try and do a Taitoshi. I bet you if you spent five minutes, you could think of a rule that would get people into the position that you want so that they can apply their Taitoshi. And then when you've practiced that a bit, you can actually use that skill set in Randori. I know that I want to get my partner into this position or when my partner's in this position, this is what it feels like. And I've done a hundred thousand attempts of fitting in when somebody's in a position that's a little bit like this. So we're doing what's called repetition without repetition. I'm not just practicing the same technique over and over and over again. I'm putting myself in a situation where that opportunity for action happens a lot. And I'm learning how I can move my body in a different way to apply the technique in the real world rather than against the zombie. Yeah. And I think, so I'm just trying to think of ways to possibly explain this as well and please correct me you know if you think I'm slightly off but I think when when I speak to like I say beginners but I what I'm talking about non-elite judo players and when I'm speaking to them about what when they're watching elite judo it's very clear we're watching very different things okay so they're looking at the end result the throw and not all the things that go into it and there's a belief that like when they're watching certain people that some people are moving extremely fast or but judo is not random judo like there's not it's not it's not chaos there's within the movement patterns and there are rule sets where people go and I suppose an easy way to think about it is like really good football players. They don't necessarily have to sprint the length of the pitch to get the ball because they can read the game. They can see where the ball is going to be passed by the position of the part that per, the person's shoulder or the hips or stuff. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. It's the same in judo that the judo players, we're not watching anything. We're feeling, you know, we feel the movement. We know when, when we feel uh, a danger, you know, for example, um, using the competition area is a really good one. You know, if you want to throw somebody, uh, pinning them against the edge is a really good starting point because you're going to force a reaction. For sure, you think, know what's coming, don't you? Yeah, exactly. And I think that's that's part of it, isn't it? It's about learning the the rules of reaction. It's not chaos. You know, it's not this complete, route. like, they're not, you know, when you're doing judo, somebody's not going to strip off their judo suit and run off. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like it's not I that know, I've been to some contests when I was younger. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I've not been to any of those yet, actually. So maybe I've been all right. But you know, there are. It's not an infinite amount of possibilities in regards of you know something completely random could happen. You know, the rules of the game will sort of specify certain results and i'm guessing that's why we're talking about the the importance of skill and if somebody is just practicing one technique the fact mm -hmm. that you add a different stimulus blows that it it removes that completely it makes it it's not recognizable it yeah it becomes redundant. yeah yeah you're, you've you've smashed it there you go I, i'm done <laughs> no you're right so the way that a technique is done when somebody is moving in 
a different way. You know, their weight is shifting from left to right and they're going slightly towards their heel. The way I execute my technique is it's just chalk and cheese. It's a totally different movement pattern to how I would do it if my partner was stood like a zombie. So the skill, the two elements that we're hoping to sort of develop by having a more, uh, they call it a representative learning design, by having a more representative task is it's given me what's called action fidelity. So the way that I throw somebody is dependent on how they move, how they react, how they're adjusting. I'm learning how to adjust my movement pattern, my motor solution, my, my lob, my throw, to accommodate what they're doing to prevent it. If I just practice a disembodied technique, I don't pick up any of that skill. I'm not learning how to throw somebody that doesn't want to be thrown. You know, it's like I don't want to offend the poor karate people as well. I'm going to going to be pursuing you might as well you might as well yeah i think you've had a pop at every judo every judo coach you've had a go at religion and now let's move on to karate let's not i feeling i got them in there as well yeah 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 it's all right i didn't like this podcast in any way so it'd be taken down won't it oh i'm sorry you're never gonna publish it (laughs) yeah so so for karate karate is a really good example there are different schools of karate where you go up and down a room punching the air and they have these techniques that they learn and when they get in a fight, they have no idea how to actually fight each other. Then you've got other styles of karate where they do loads and loads of situated randori. They're sparring with each other all the time. They're learning how you actually kick somebody in the face rather than kick the air. And you can see it. It just happens all the time. You'll see a person that comes from the karate where they go up and down the room punching and kicking the air. And they, oh, I'm a, I'm a black belt. I've got a black belt. And some drunken crank pushes them and they get into this fight stance and they don't know what the hell they're doing because all of the disembodied technical stuff you know if you don't know how to actually punch somebody when they're trying to not be punched it's a redundant skill it's the same in judo i might know what a sianagi looks like when my partner stands still but when my partner's pulling away from me or pushing their hips into me or they're trying to step to the side all the adjustments and micro adjustments and changes that i make to my mechanics i've not learned any of that it's just gone. So learning to fit your technique of, I don't want to really use the word technique, you know, learning to fit your motor solution, your throw, to the information that's coming to you from the person you're fighting is really, really important in and of itself. And learning how to dial into that dance. There's two people that are fighting. And as you say, it's not chaos. I'm doing stuff and you're reacting to it. And I'm reacting to your reactions to it. So we're both, I'm this, this um, they call it dynamical systems theory, but I really will not go into that. That's too too tedious for the time we've yeah, got it's, left. It's quite late, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll avoid that one. But we we attune into how our opponent moves. Our movements make them do stuff, and the stuff they do makes us do stuff. And that's um, it's not it's definitely not chaos, but it's not entirely predictable. But there are bits of that that I can know. I know. So it's why if you're doing a kurashi barai in club, you're showing somebody what an Akurashi Barai is, and you get a white belt come up for you to show it with, they don't, you can't do it. They don't do the little skippy sidestep thing, because they've never learned it. They don't know that that's the dance move. They don't know when I pull you like this, you do this little floaty step. So they've not got that information. That's why feints work really, really well when you're fighting a good judo player. You know, if I'm fighting a world champion, and I make it look like I'm going in for a scene again, I just show half a second of a turn, they'll have reacted before I even thought of it. Whereas if I show it to, if I'm going against someone that's on their third class and I put a feint in, they've not moved. They haven't got a bloody clue. 
because they've not attuned to that information. The more representative we can make our practice tasks, the more they're attuning to that information, the more they're learning to set up feints, how to adjust, how to react to if somebody comes in for a throw, how they can set their own throws up themselves. They're learning how to do the dance and how to do the throws in, in reality. This is where it gets really, like, this is where you can go into a wormhole because either, like, there's definitely things that I teach at the beginning where maybe three or four stages down the line, I'm not going to say belt colours or anything, it's about understanding of you. There'll be things I say you never do this at the beginning, but I would quite easily say you would do it three or four stages down the line. And the reason being is they haven't learned the rules of the game yet yeah, yeah, yeah. So you you know so you you can't break any rules until you know the rules and you For know sure. why why they're in really important but i guess the issue is then because at some point you've got to teach somebody how to coach okay and you've got to teach somebody how to deliver judo and you cannot put on a piece of paper like when you're trying to teach and coach people how to be better coaches you've got to wait for this feeling you've got you know what i mean because a feeling it's exactly that it's so hard and and that's why i love judo and i love that and that's why as a judo coach the first thing i want to do is grab hold of somebody and go this is what it feels like yeah you know, i don't want to say put your foot here put you know I want to say this is what it should feel like and to actually how do you get to a point where you can put that down and teach that to people you know because it's got to be like so say for example we would talk about judo trees you know and i this is something that i'm working on saying right if you do Uchigari, they could possibly step off and you you put parameters of what they could do because somebody can visualize what an Uchigari looks like but if i say right i want you to push them and from that push or that pull, you know, it may, it could be anything. Now, I know the technique could be anything, but there needs yeah. to be a, an anchor, a starting point, doesn't there? Yeah, for sure. So that's, that's one of the big uh, advantages of this type of training is I don't have prescribed preset combinations. Mm. I, I know there are throws that fit with each other. I know that if I'm doing uh, a technique that goes one direction, their push to defend or pull to defend will make them vulnerable the other direction. That's, you know, there's, there are techniques that link together, but I don't know what you're going to do. So I can't, I can't in my head, know I'm going to pretend to do a Cianagi and I'm going to come in and do a Kuch Gaki Makakomi when you react to it. Cause you might not react that way. You might do something completely different. So by having these representative tasks, what you're doing is you're putting that feeling into people's hands. You're making them learn what it feels like when you do a throw on somebody and they avoid it and their weight is on their heels or their weight is going to the side because they're actually experiencing that. They're having loads and loads of pictures of it. They get contact with that feeling consistently. Whereas if I didn't do that, if we did, I'm going to do 100 Ruchikomis and 100 Nagakomis, how much of that feeling of learning when their weight's coming forward, when their weight's going back, what technique I can follow with after they've defended, how I adjust when they've defended, you get absolutely none of that. You're just practicing an isolated move. So how would you go about, right? Um, you're, you're going to be taking, uh, let, let's just imagine, you're going to be taking a coaching course and you've got 50 judo coaches on the mat. Now, 
it doesn't have to be COVID, but what if their level of understanding of judo is they they can't necessarily they don't necessarily know the groupings of techniques as well as say you do or i do you know like i know in a certain direction i should be using x amount of techniques or but that's because i know the techniques okay and you want those guys to be able to then go away and teach good judo how do you do that in, in that situation did i ask i did that make sense then uh, I think so. They might not know the canonical techniques, the stuff from the goalkeeper. They don't know the sixty throws as easily. Is that what you mean? Yeah, I think yeah. So, how would you go about te teaching coaches how to do this if you don't know that they can do certain? If they know the techniques, you know, they, you can't yeah. just send them off and go. Well, have a push and have figure a it out. Yeah, yeah. yeah, no, for sure. So, as a, as a, I think I said before, the 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 useful thing about having coaches or having judo players that have got really good knowledge of judo, there are, there'll be tens of people listening to this that have masses more judo knowledge than me. They'll be yeah, there's definitely ten proper people that definitely tens, ten. tens of them, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, three, three. <laughs> my mum. <laughs> At least there won't be many people hating me. Uh, but having knowledge of judo itself can help inform how you do these little constraint-based stuff. So one of the big problems that we have in the, the approach I come from, this sort of constraints-led approach, is it's often conflated with teaching games for understanding. So we're not just saying play games and figure it out. That's, that's not, not the point at all. The point is that the constraints, the, the rules that we put on, I call them games because calling them drills just creates so much confusion it's, it's not a drill there's a variable outcome so we i'll call them games if it makes me sound like i'm a five-year-old i apologize call them what you like i don't mind yeah yeah i will <laughs> so having these games with all these different constraints can help uh motor solutions emerge so if i want someone to do a tom and Aggie, people aren't going to accidentally do tom and Aggie. it's not a thing that you just accidentally fall into and do or it's very rare that people accidentally fall into and do it. So I can build constraints based on my understanding of judo and little games that can help build towards that. So something like, uh, if we're going for Tom and Aggie, do I want to drop away from my partner or do I want to try and drop underneath them? Probably underneath them. I'd rather be closer to them than falling away from them, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. And I was—I yeah. didn't realise you wanted. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Audience participation. Let's go for it. <laughs> yeah. So if I fall away from you and I detach from you, it's much more difficult for me to get elevation because I'm not underneath you. My centre of mass being underneath yours means that as I produce force, I lift you more easily. So I want to get close to you. So a super simple constraint-based game. I know for my Tom and Aggie, I want to be sat underneath you. So you just play a game where I'm trying to sit between your feet. If I can sit my bum between your feet, I get a point. If I can't, I don't get a point. And I'm going to see how many points I can get in that amount of time. So I've not taught a Tom and Aggie. I've not taught the movement pattern of Tom and Aggie. I've just played a game where my knowledge of judo, I want to be underneath my opponent's center of mass with my center of mass so I can get a good lift, has informed a bit of that game. And then I can add another element in. I know that I want good connection with my foot on their sort of hippie liney thing whatever you call that so then i want to sit on the floor between your feet with my foot in contact with your stomach and then i can build it up and build it up i want 
connection with my grip and I want my elbows in nice and tight, all the little coaching points that you might think are important technically, you can start building in and put it so it's situated within a, a more representative task. I'm not just learning this is what the technique is. I'm learning when you're fighting someone and they really know that you're going to try and sit down underneath them in Tom and Aggie, yeah? this is how you do it. This is how the skill works. You're actually having to fit yourself in into those positions. So if the coach, if the coach candidates, the people that are going to hopefully be coaches, don't know judo very well, if their knowledge about the sport is poor, then it can be very difficult to become a, a decent coach. You know, I think that's, you know, if I started coaching lacrosse, I could probably have a decent stab at it. You know, I've a bit of a nerd for skill act stuff, so I could google around for what the important bits are for passing lacrosse but i i know nothing about lacrosse whereas if i had a lacrosse player they'd know all of the where you want your head i don't know enough about lacrosse to finish that analogy <laughs> so i think uh and once again please correct me if i i've got this wrong i think the the biggest takeaway with this is it, well, it's something I, I say to players that I work with a lot is there's knowledge and understanding. So I can teach you anything. I can teach you any judo throw. I can teach you. And that becomes your knowledge. But you only create understanding once there's context to that knowledge. So an outcome, a winner, a loser, uh, uh, you know, landing on your head, you know, not to do that. <laughs> and it's the same. It's the same way that children like toddlers learn. You go, oh, don't do that. You're going to hurt yourself. And obviously yeah, yeah. they have the knowledge that if you do that, they're going to hurt themselves. But yet they have to experience it. They have to create that understanding. And essentially what I think you're saying is, it's fine learning, it's fine gaining knowledge because that will help you in the long run with it, but it's only once you experience the result of something, the movement, the, the doing, the, it's only once you actually put that together, you'll create that understanding. That's why maybe competitions are quite good because there's a clear winner, loser. You know, you get an outcome and you can go, well, did I like that? Did I not like that? Can I improve on that? And you can then add more rules to it. Is that right? Yeah, almost. So almost. there's... That's it's right. called, I'll take that. <laughs> so the, it's referred to in the literature. We, it's known as knowledge about and knowledge of. So knowing, uh, I'll use football as an example, knowing that when Messi is running and their defence is high, I want to play a through ball because Messi's really good at football and will win. Well, that's knowledge about. I know that that's a thing, right? I know. Are you an expert in football too? <laughs> I dabble. <laughs> so I know that there are rules. There are things that I should be able to do in those situations. But when it becomes knowledge of, is when I've got those skills embedded. So I might know that um, two techniques link. I know when I try and do this, you're going to avoid it and I can follow up with this other throw. But that is just abstract knowledge that exists in the back of my head. It's not something that is tangible or I can't act on it until it becomes knowledge of. And the way it becomes knowledge of is by putting myself in situations where that becomes embodied and embodied, embedded and embodied, there you go. Uh, so I know that these two techniques link. I don't know how they, I, I know, the idea of how they link but i don't have the feeling i don't have the knowledge in my body i don't know what it looks like i don't know what it feels like i don't know how my body moves when it's doing it i know i should play that past the messy but my 
my feet don't know how to do that pass. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. So that abstract knowledge is really useful if you're designing practice sessions, but it's not very useful on the back end. It's one of the things that happens quite a lot in uh, sport when there's transitions from elite players to elite coaches is they've got really, really good knowledge of if I put, um, I don't know, Roy Keane on a football pitch, he understands when he should be in certain positions to snuff out danger. He knows when he should play passes into certain positions to orchestrate an attack. But it doesn't mean that he knows how to run practice sessions. It doesn't mean he knows anything about motor learning or how people actually develop skills themselves. But if he learned those skills, the fact that he's got masses and masses of this abstract, concrete knowledge of when you should be doing these things means he'd be able to design really useful, really effective constraints to get people to learn those skills. You see what I mean? It's like it's a, a different skill set. You can be a phenomenally gifted athlete and not have a clue why you're good at what you do. It's just it all lives in your body. You're acting on autopilot. You've done a throw. You don't know why you did that combination. You just felt that weight go backwards and you followed it up and you did a throw. That's phenomenal. But it doesn't mean that you understand it in a way that you can start coaching it to people. But I suppose as well, though, it does give them a lot of potential with if you have that skill of educating coaches actually you could unlock a huge because that back-end stuff you know what what you're talking about is absolutely what a lot of the front you know the people who might be able to deliver they don't have enough knowledge of of that area so i think being able to coach people like be able to give elite players the ability now it's not just that because obviously for coaching you need empathy there's loads of other oh, skills exactly. you yeah, need yeah, yeah. To, to coach but actually the potential is quite high if you could unlock that elite player to actually understand how they how is i guess it's like understanding the language isn't it if they could understand the language of coaching they've got a, a huge amount of um vocabulary if they could understand it yeah yeah but the the seems true as well it's sort of conversely true that there are people that didn't become elite that have masses of knowledge about the sport in and of itself anyway you know the, the people that become elite are very good at doing judo they uh eat. there's not to denigrate in any way but they're phenomenally gifted athletes through hard work or gifts genetic gifts they're elite athletes that are also very well attuned to their environments they're fighting somebody their opponent makes a micro twitching movement and they can capitalize on and hammer their opponent beautifully you know elite judo is on a on another level to playing about in banger after uh, before having a couple of pints but the knowledge of what is required in those situations how we need to uh, combine techniques when you can do things is known by people that might not be able to do it at an elite level too. That's why you look at football. I mean, Mourinho, he's down on a downward spiral now, but he was just a translator. Uh, Jurgen Klopp was an amateurish footballer. Uh, Bielsa didn't play. Uh, loads of them were just people that liked football, that knew a lot about football, went into coaching uh, and became elite coaches. And then you've got some people that have got the other end of it where they were elite football players that 
fell into coaching. And I don't think that one has an advantage over the other. I think the, the danger of saying that somebody that's been through elite pathways has better knowledge about, so should be able to become a better coach than somebody that hasn't. Uh, I think that's a bit of a, uh, a red herring. You know, I don't think that, that ne- one necessarily follows the other. Yeah, I don't. I don't think I. I don't think that's what I was saying. Um, okay. I Maybe don't know. No, no, no. I don't. I. I wasn't saying that because I know the skill set that goes into coaching is so much more than just actually teaching whatever it is. Because especially at the elite end, you mm-hmm. know, there's so many skills of management that you need. In you know, this is just one area of of at least developing sport so it's not what i was saying but i do think if they're that way inclined if they wanted to be a good coach they they would bring a lot to the table at that end that's what i say and i yeah i i'm not saying that i think there necessarily would be a great coach but i'm thinking if they're that way inclined because the biggest problem that I think elite players have is, well, I think with elite sports people is it goes from not about them to about everybody. You know, as yeah. a performer, it's about you. And it's a different dynamic to pick up on. I'm just saying if they if they feel like they could do it, then, yeah, I think I think they could bring a lot to the table. Yeah, I think it's, um, it's a useful position to start from, having a lot of knowledge about. But it, the... The flip side of the coin is there are people that aren't elite that have just as much knowledge about, uh, you know, there's for every Guardiola, there's a Jose Mourinho, you know, for every person that was an elite football player, there's some translator that is a bit of a dork and knows a lot about the sport. Yeah, uh, right. So, Cal, this has been amazing. We've been on for quite some time now. Um, <laughs> no, that's all right. No, I've really enjoyed it. I've started to get a bit of uh, interference on your microphone as well. So, oh, that's all right. I don't know what I don't know why it's causing it. Um, but before we go, is there anything? Because obviously, I said this is new. Like, was there anything you were hoping to talk about before we finish, or do you think we uh, we covered a good amount? Yeah, got through loads. I mean, anything else? I'd want to talk about it take another 30 minutes so i'll, I'll leave yeah. it uh, well no, there's always chance in the future so um let's oh, yeah. call back uh, <laughs> but if anybody's interested or wants to talk about it uh i'm on the twitter cal jones judo i'm always happy to talk about it as long yeah. as i'm calling me an idiot yeah i was gonna say let's let's keep it uh let's keep it nice um and i'll, <laughs> I'll put a link to that in in the description as well but i just want to say cal thanks thanks for reaching out actually um I'm glad, you know, we, we've done this. Talk. I've really enjoyed it. Um, and I think, yeah, no, I hope everybody else enjoys it too. So thanks a lot, pal. Yeah, well, thanks for the opportunity. Cheers. Cheers. See you now. Yeah, and there we are. And a big thanks to Cal there. Um, as I said, I'd never met Cal. You know, he just sent me an email. And, you know, I really want this podcast to progress. So I think trying to take on topics like that is really really good and the discussion around coaching is really really important I don't there's lots of things that we discuss that you know I use all the time and I wouldn't say that it's unique to me I'm sure many of you guys do certain things of almost I it's not tricking them to learn but you know organizing games and challenges and skills that are you know not necessarily judo technique because 
I I don't really like getting bogged down with, especially with younger ones and beginners, like the real finer points of techniques at the beginning. I think judo is so hard learning how to control and move your body, and unless you can get the you know the physical skills and the coordination and the movement and stuff, judo is an absolute nightmare to try and learn. So. But also on the same hand, I'm not 100% that way. I still think there's a time and place for repetition, I think. Because coaching's, as I said, coaching's not 100% of one thing. There's so many elements that go into it. And what you do on the mat is one part. And it might be that the repetition, going over and over again, doing your uchikomi, your moving, nagakomi and stuff, is actually just getting good... Pro, um, creating a good mindset for your player to be able to do the stuff that maybe they don't enjoy as much but also as well like when you're on camp, training camp with three four hundred people you can't just start doing skills games all around the mat you, you're gonna have to warm up somehow and doing repetition of uchikomi and nagakomi is actually quite a good way of getting ready to do your randori within a big group um but yeah i as i say i enjoyed it and i hope i hope you guys enjoyed it and didn't didn't find Cal to be coming across um, wrong because he really wasn't. I, I feel like he had a really nice nature within that podcast and I, yeah, I really enjoyed it. And if there's anybody listening to this thinking, you know, I'd like to talk about strength and conditioning with kids or, you know, any aspect, I'm more than happy to, to jump on. And I, I think coaching improves and judo improves through discussion um, and that's something that we've been doing from from the first podcast, I hope. But yeah, you know, let me go know what you think. You know, keep contacting me. As I said before, please subscribe. You, you know, hit the like button, share them. It really, really makes a difference. Um, and I guess how are you guys getting on with your coaching? It's been a weird one for me. We've just literally we've opened up to adults this week, socially distanced, which has been really good. Um, we're obviously cleaning everything down and one thing that we're doing is coaches, myself, my wife and, you know, coaches that are working with us, you know, we're taking the the COVID testing just to try and keep uh, on top of making sure that we're, you know, we're okay teaching. It's, it's just a strange world at the moment. I've seen a few more camps and tournaments. I've seen Sportif have opened up their summer camp um, and they've also released um, some dates for April, which is, you know, really, really positive. I'm so hopeful. Is it, it's actually a good job that private providers are actually getting out there and starting to get camps ready. I've seen um, the C2 camps are ready as well. I just hope they can go ahead. It's so hard. I mean, it's crazy, isn't it? Looking at the Olympics is meant to be in a couple of months, and I just can't, I can't see how they can organise the world to be ready to take part in a major games like that. It's not just the athletes, is it? It's everyone. It's the support staff, the bubbles. Like, how? What happens if one person in a team from one sport catches COVID? Like, what happens then? So yeah, it's, it's just so strange at the moment for judo. Um, but yeah, I guess please keep contacting me, you know, share any ideas past the pod and, you know, I just look forward to speaking to you guys again next week. Take care. Judo talk, talk, judo talk.